You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you can hear me well enough. I don't know. There's no red lights on the on the uh, on the mic, so I don't know whether I'm on. But I hope you can hear me well enough. Thank you. Um, so we are here to talk about sustained exits from po- poverty, um, a research program that's been supported by the DFID ESRC Poverty Research Program, um, led by Andrew Shepherd. Um, and ODI and colleagues from Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda. So my job basically is just to introduce uh, the panel and to kind of keep everybody to order, try and keep things to time, try and break up any uh, any really sort of, um, let's say, passionate debates uh, if, it's, if it's taking us off, off track. Um, I'll start with myself and then I'll introduce the panel. My name is Andrew Long. I'm the Head of Profession for Social Development at the Department for International Development at DFID. Um, I've uh, had a long interest in this particular agenda and I head a group of advisors across the organisation who also, our primary objective is what are we going to do about extreme poverty. So for us this is a particularly interesting um, uh, set of research findings. Um, so we have Andrew Shepherd, who's going to introduce briefly the, the kind of uh, the context for the research and to give us some headlines. Um, and then we have, we have Fred uh, Goloba Mutebe from Uganda and Rwanda, I understand, who's going to talk to us about political settlements as a, P, as a key um, piece of framing um, and one of the key challenges for addressing, addressing poverty. And then we have um, uh, uh, Elvin Nukuri from Kenya, who's going to give us some reflections on the research work um, uh, and the findings from Kenya. Um, so I won't say much more, but I will just say that we are also online. We have an online audience, and I think it's obviously going to be increasingly the case that uh, the bulk of people who will take part in these meetings will be uh, virtual. Um, and it's good to see a good number of people here. So we also offer the opportunity for questions, Q&A, for those uh, uh, participants who are online. And um, we're using a Twitter hashtag, which uh, is uh, hashtag neverfallback. Um, so there are also opportunities there to contribute um, questions and to get involved in the debate. So I'm going to hand over now to um, Andrew to give us a few words about the context of the research um, to help frame. And then um, uh, I believe, Fred, you're going to go first, then Andrew, then Elvin, and then we'll open it up for a standard Q&A. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you. Uh, very nice to see you all here. Uh, Rob, do I, which one do I click? The top one? The right arrow, okay. The right arrow, thank you. There we go. Um, I hope you can all see the, the various screens around the room. Um, this is, uh, yeah, I'll just go to the first graph, actually, uh, and talk a little bit about the origin of this work. Um, again, I'm not sure that you can see that, but Uh, The yellow bars show that once people have escaped poverty, uh, some of them stay out of poverty. That's the yellow bars on this graph. Uh, The gray bars show that once people have escaped poverty, they can fall back in again. And this is data from, from household surveys done during the 2000s. So this is quite old data. This is the origin of our research problem. This is why we are researching... Uh, sustained escapes 
from poverty. We're asking the question, why are some escapes from poverty sustained? Why do they keep going? People stay out of poverty. And why do others uh, fall in? So that's very simply the, the origin. And the research that we've done to try to answer this question, uh, I should just say on that graph that we, we felt that this was quite an important question because in a number of different contexts, even in quite favorable contexts, I think Vietnam was one of them. I'm not sure if Vietnam is up there, actually. Yes, Vietnam is there. So even in Vietnam, there was a significant falling back into poverty. So uh, we felt it was quite an important question. Um, so the research that we designed to answer this uh, was uh, to use panel data, that is household surveys which track households over time. And what we needed here was household surveys which would track people over three points in time. Point one, 2000, point two, 2005, point three, 2010. And we'd then be able to see what happened between these different points of time. Did they escape from poverty? Did they uh, fall back in? Alongside this, um, and so we have, we have Ethiopia and Tanzania with three-wave panel data. We were hoping that Rwanda, when we started out on the research, we were hoping Rwanda would have it as well. There is a third wave, but uh, it wasn't in time to, for us to analyze it for this project, but hopefully we will analyze it when the data comes out uh, later this year. Uh, then we accompany this uh, quantitative analysis of household survey data with qualitative analysis based on uh, life history interviews, of course, not with a massive sample, as the household surveys cover, but with a, a small but significant sample, so 50 households, uh, 60 households, that kind of level, slightly smaller in Tanzania, and also focus group discussions and key informant inter inter interviews to try and get underneath the statistics and understand what is going on here, try and uh, really explain what is going on here. And we also, in all of this research, we're looking for policy implications. We're trying to see what policies are working on the ground, what are the different effects of different policies. So it's very much a policy-focused piece of research. Now, let me just go back to one or two comments that I wanted to say. This is work in progress. We haven't finished. Hopefully, today, your contributions will be significant in terms of moving us on particularly in terms of two things. One is discussing the relationship between the political settlements, the political economy that Fred is going to talk about, and the poverty dynamics outcomes, what happens to people at the bottom of the distribution. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's also work in progress in a number of other ways. I'm not going to go into them all, but in terms of policy engagement. At the beginning of this project, we thought that we wanted the research to inform policy in the three countries that we were going to mainly focus on, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Tanzania. And we developed stakeholder groups. We invited people to join the research uh, from different government agencies, non-government agencies, and so on, at the beginning of the research. Uh, and that process is still concluding now with national workshops. For example, the Ethiopian National Workshop is going to be held next Monday. Uh, so the research is being very much uh, fed back uh, into um, into policy. So the structure of the day, the first panel, I'm sure you've all seen this online, but I'm just going to recap it. The first panel 
is looking at the political settlements and poverty dynamics, as Andrew has just outlined. The second panel will be a bit of a more of a deep dive into country experiences, focusing on uh, Rwanda, Tanzania, Ethiopia, and also Nepal, where we've been doing some other work. Uh, and, uh, and then a third session, sort of trying to tease out the policy implications. I should say that, why, why Nepal? And in the first session, we have a, uh, a short uh, reflection from Kenya as well. Uh, this research on Ethiopia, Rwanda, Tanzania is nested within a wider set of uh, country studies. So we will, by the approximately August this year, have uh, 10 country studies under our belts. And of course, this makes the process, you'll, you'll see in a minute when I try to present the synthesis of just these three countries, um, with a little bit of reference to some others by comparison, you'll see how difficult it is to bring the research results together. But it's going to be even more of a challenge when we have 10 countries. And I'll stop my introduction there. Thank you, Andrew. OK, great. Thanks, Andrew. <coughs> I think it was a helpful summary. So Fred, I think you're going to present first on <coughs> excuse me, understanding the kind of political economy dimensions of, of this set of problems. Um, so I'll, I'll, over to you. Yeah, um, <coughs> thank you very much. Um, um, the debate or discussion about political settlements does get a bit complicated, and I tend always to try and break it down to the simplest forms, at least in the ways that I understand it. <coughs> um, the way I'm going to try and go through this is uh, to do the same. Sort of, I don't want to go into the deep discussion of what political settlement actually means as a concept. Uh, except to say that the way I'm going to use it here is going to be uh, looking at how politics is organized and practiced <coughs> in each uh, of the three countries. And that's because uh, usually when we are looking at issues of poverty, we tend to preoccupy ourselves with the technical aspects of how poverty gets tackled and so on and so forth, and we forget but actually politics, or the way politics is organized and practiced, is a very important element <coughs> of what makes policy succeed or fail. Um, <coughs> now what I'm trying to do here is to try and look at how politics is organized in Rwanda, Ethiopia, and Tanzania, and how that impacts on or influences uh, the poverty reduction strategies of the three governments. Of course, these are three very different countries <coughs> with very different histories, led by elites with divergent backgrounds. Um, and so comparing them is a fairly difficult task. So I'm going to be very broad sweeping in my <coughs> uh, discussion. Um, What does political settlements mean? In very simple terms, it actually conveys two very basic ideas. Now, one of them is that institutions matter. <coughs> Secondly, that non-institutional factors shape the way institutions work. <coughs> and one institu non-institutional factor <coughs> that shapes the work of institutions is the distribution of power among major elements of a national elite. Now, this balance or distribution of power is what amounts to a political settlement in any particular context and is underlain by agreement about rules of the game which rule out the use of violence in the pursuit of power. 
Now, usually when people use the term political settlements, it tends to convey the, uh, the idea that somehow once there is a settlement, everybody has to be included, or everybody who must conceivably be included is in. It doesn't actually mean that in practice. What it means is that uh, it <coughs> includes those that agree with regard to very specific ideas that might be put forward by the dominant elites. And of course that means that some will be left out. But what makes a political settlement durable, uh, from what we understand, is that it, it has to include those that have the capacity for disruption. <coughs> as long as everybody who can disrupt successfully is included, then the chances of that settlement uh, enduring are very high. Now, looking at the three countries very broadly, <coughs> um, all these three countries have common features, one of which is that they are all dominant party dispensations. They are led by very dominant political organizations. You have the RPF in Rwanda, the EPRDF in Ethiopia, and CCM in Tanzania. Now, all potential opposition groups are very weakly organized and very poorly resourced. And that does have implications. Now, very broadly, the implication is that these groups, the ruling coalitions, are therefore able to enjoy ample space to make policy and to try and implement it without necessarily fearing uh, what might happen in terms of who is opposing these policies and therefore what they have to do to keep opposition at bay. Now, in uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda, less so in Tanzania, anti-poverty policies and the ability to deliver inclusive development are key legitimating tools for the ruling elite. Uh, the, the, Rwanda, the Rwanda Patriotic Front seeks to justify its hold on power by delivering development and inclusive development. And this also applies to the EPRDF. In Tanzania, this was the case during the times of Julius Nyerere, and it would seem as if since the passing of Nyerere, over time this has become less and less so. Um, now, what does this imply? Uh, it implies that the anti-poverty drive in Rwanda and Ethiopia is entirely internally generated and driven, and not the product of external dictate, diktat or direct influence. Whereas in Tanzania, one could argue that it, 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 it is highly influenced by external factors, or the, inter the interest of the international community in poverty or poverty reduction as an issue. Um, Looking at capacity for delivering development in all the three countries, <coughs> um, each of these countries has a, a decentralized local government system. <coughs> now, local governments in all the countries enjoy different levels of autonomy, with Tanzanians' local governments enjoying the highest level of autonomy. Now, on the other hand, in Rwanda and Ethiopia, there's a great deal of central control and direction on what local governments do. <coughs> and the implication of that is that both the government of Rwanda and the one of Ethiopia are more able to ensure that local governments do what they are supposed to do in terms of implementation of priority policies. Whereas in Tanzania, there's space for local governments to do what they choose to do because they enjoy a significant amount of autonomy from the center. 
In terms of accountability, in Rwanda and Ethiopia, governments impose very tough top-down discipline, disciplining pressures on local governments to deliver. Now, in Rwanda, we have a mechanism that the government uses for this, um, the central government, that is, which are the performance contracts that are signed between the national uh, leadership and local uh, leaders. In Ethiopia also, uh, local governments are really under very, very strict control by the center. But in Tanzania, because of the adherence to the principle of autonomy, it means that the central government has very little leverage over local governments. The implication of this is that in Rwanda and Ethiopia, the possibility of ensuring that national goals are achieved via local governments is higher than in Tanzania, where openings for local elites to do as they choose is very wide. Now, the key question this raises for us, or for the team that was doing this research, is what all this uh, actually amounts to. And the answer to this lies in what was found by those who did the local level uh, field studies. And at, at this point, I'll turn over to Andrew has done the synthesis of the findings of those studies. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Last time too. Andrew, you're going to give us a synthesis account of uh, the findings, and then we will have some respondent and a bit more of a thank field. Yep. Thank okay. you very much, Fred. Um, well, having heard very briefly, I think there's a lot more to discuss there. <laughs> but uh, having heard very briefly about the um, political settlements in in the three countries, then. Uh, I'm going to try and, uh, at slightly greater length, um, present to you some of our findings uh, from the field and from the uh, quantitative analysis. So um, what we found was that the sustained escapes, as a proportion of the, the samples in the household surveys, were relatively low, although you could say that um, uh, this was over a fairly restricted period of time. So this was over four, five, six years. Uh, varies from one country to another. If I just show you um, some diagrams, I think that's probably the best way of displaying it there. Uh, the sustained escapes are the, uh, what color are they? Gray, isn't it? finding it difficult to see that, that myself, but I think they're the gray slices on these pie charts. So you can see that uh, either the, the majority of the samples are either non-poor, uh, never poor, or uh, in some cases chronically poor, uh, and then quite a lot of people are becoming impoverished in a number of those countries. So we've got there... Um, uh, Ethiopia and Tanzania, two of our main countries. And just for comparative purposes, we've got also rural Kenya, Uganda, and South Africa, showing quite a de degree of variety, uh, actually, in the kind of poverty dynamics outcomes that you can get. I'm just going to show a very quick slide on Rwanda, uh, because we only had two waves of uh, the survey in Rwanda, as I explained. Um, we have... Uh, only people who are escaping poverty and people who are uh, entering into poverty, becoming poor, uh, and then those who are um, continuously poor and uh, those who are never poor. And if you look at the little table there, 
this is uh, a summary of our quantitative research. Uh, uh, sorry, qualitative research. So a much smaller sample of households, 79 households, as opposed to the, was it 1,000 and something households in the uh, household survey, Alex? I can't remember the number, but more than 2,000. More than 2,000, OK. So, uh, uh, but here it's only 79 households. But you can see that if you can understand the, uh, the, the kind of little labels, P, P is uh, poor and poor, so chronically poor. P and N is poor and non-poor, so that's somebody escaping poverty. If you look at the people who are escaping poverty, P and N, you can see that of those, by the time we did the qualitative research three years later, uh, six of those had remained out of poverty and three had fallen back into poverty, according to our analysis. So you can see that there was quite a mix there. What you can also see there is that there's quite a bit of impoverishment going on. Uh, uh, so the, the, the people who, most of the people, all of the people actually, who became poor stayed poor. And some of those who were not poor also became poor. So there's, what you can see is lots of dynamic there um, and a certain proportion uh, remaining poor. Um, I just want to mention one other issue, which is that if you start to look at the ratios between these um, different trajectories, you find that, um, uh, if you like, uh, there's an adverse uh, impoverishment to sustained escape ratio uh, here, except in Tanzania, across these six cases now, except in Tanzania, there's an adverse ratio between uh, impoverishment and sustained escape. Um, so a lot of impoverishment going on uh, in, in uh, these samples. Okay, that's some of the uh, description. Uh, and let me just uh, get rid of these and come to a bit more of the analysis. Um, I'm going to try now to summarize some of the, the sort of key features that we found. Uh, we did, uh, obviously, quite a lot of regression analysis uh, using the household survey data. And we also, as I explained, went out and did quite extensive field work uh, in the three countries. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit now. I can just find my right notes. Um, yeah, about uh, three sets of findings uh, on growth from below, as I've called it, uh, risk management, and some social issues. And then at the end, I'll come on to some policy issues. So hopefully, Andrew, I won't take too long on this. Growth from above is what governments focus a lot of energy on, so attracting foreign direct investment, creating formal sector jobs. And we know from Asian experience uh, that this is the most rapid way to reduce poverty, if it can be engineered. Of course, it's not easy to engineer it. Even in Asia, it's not easy to, to engineer it. <clears throat> However, in the meantime, and I would say in parallel, and the Asian experience very much reflects this, you also need growth from below. Uh, this is where goods and services are exchanged in the informal economy, leading to income growth. Sometimes this is driven by agricultural growth. Um, sometimes it's driven by public investment. Social protection can uh, also be a driver, it can, or at least it can help. 
urbanization policies which create good links back into the rural economy uh, and migrate and they also create uh, migration or commuting opportunities uh, can be can be extremely useful in this so what we found is that people who are making sustained escapes are often diversifying away from agriculture agriculture is still part of their story but migration investing in urban areas investing in non-farm occupations these are the things which are also very important in many of the stories that we uh, both in the quantitative analysis and in the qualitative analysis uh, as our evidence base on sustained escapes um, just thinking about agriculture most of the sustained escapes which happen through agriculture are going on in areas where there is still plenty of land so people can accumulate land either through through buying it or renting it and and grow more if you like so they're part of the uh, the agricultural growth story and that's definitely one way in those areas but there are many areas and some countries Rwanda is an example of a country where uh, land ownership is highly constrained what one of the surprising findings here was that even where people are farming tiny plots these can still be an important part of uh, the story of getting out of poverty. So, uh, and, and I think this is an important policy implication here for, for governments, because governments tend to focus most of their energy on commercial farmers, the, the smallholders who can produce for the market, produce so-called commercial crops, exportable crops, and so on. That, that tends to be uh, the overriding focus. But the evidence here is that even farming uh, food crops sometimes for subsistence, selling the surplus on very small plots can be an important part of the story of escaping poverty. Why is that? Because it enables you to live, to exist, to subsist while you are doing some other things. You might be getting training or you might be accumulating some savings through uh, a small savings scheme, a savings um, self-help group, um, and, and then investing that, those savings in livestock or in something else. So I think this is quite an important point, that uh, agriculture is very much a part of the story, can be the, the leading factor, but even where it's not the leading factor in people sustaining their escapes, uh, it is still important. So the kind of safety net role of agriculture can be important in sustaining escapes out of poverty. And I, I find this a, a sort of uh, interesting conclusion in a way. Uh, lots of stories of... Uh, People saying that, uh, you know, what got me out of poverty and kept me out of poverty was also hard work and collaboration. In the paper that you can find on the... I, I don't think I'm going to get time to read uh, from the life stories very much. Perhaps I'll do one or two. But um, in the paper, you'll find lots of illustrations of these points uh, given through, through life stories. Now, um, I think there's some, some, little, some policy implications that we can pick up here. Um, Agriculture tends to get more of a focus than supporting it through policy and programs than supporting the non-farm, the rural non-farm economy, or supporting migrants uh, from the rural economy to urban areas, or even maybe support migrants going overseas. Perhaps gets a little bit more attention because they're bringing back foreign exchange. So there are some potential policy gaps there. And as I said, within agriculture, uh, policy focus tends to be on commercial rather than safety net. Uh, agriculture. Um, here we've got the uh, life history of 
a lady uh, in Ethiopia. I hope you can see what's on the diagram, um, but I will just tell you a little bit about her. This is Askelu's story. Currently, she has no farmland, but rears milk cows and in is engaged in poultry. Her main income-generating activity was grain trade, but she now runs a local liquor teller house. Her two daughters run a coffee shop, and one son does wage labor in an organized youth association. For her business, she got some remittances from a brother working abroad who sends her about 5,000 bir yearly. Uh, this is from Ethiopia. And gained some credit from, local, uh, from a local microfinance institute. She borrowed 5,500 bir uh, to set up uh, a business. She also saves in a local savings uh, and credit scheme. She's bought a refrigerator, a modern bed, and a TV set. In addition, she's bought her own house to live in as well for her business. She considers herself as better off, and the family economy has improved in the last six years. She narrates her pathways into a better life as follows. I have improved economically because of the different income-generating activities I'm involved in. Previously, I lived in a rented house, but I bought a residence through the income that I got from the grain trade. In addition, I'm involved in teller trade, which has more rest for me, so she gets a bit more leisure as well. Currently, I have income to cover all my household expenses. I have enough spare time to participate in social events. Many poor people don't, uh, such as weddings, christening, and memorial ceremonies. Even more important, I have enough money to spend for such social expenditures with no concern. Social expenditures can, if you, if you don't have the money, getting it, getting it to, to make available gifts or whatever is expected of you to fulfill your social obligations. This can be something that is really impoverishing for, for many people. So it's, it's interesting that she raises that. I'm considered as a model in the, communi in the community, and, and uh, uh, I'm also considered as a hard worker. She also mentions hard work. So I'm just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very nice life story. Okay, the second uh, set of issues um, on risk management. Here we go. Uh, I think that the major risks that people are facing are environmental, but also idiosyncratic. What do we mean by idiosyncratic? These are risks which affect individuals uh, or individual households rather than a whole community or a whole area. The environmental risks tend to, they don't all, but they tend to be a little bit more widespread. So obviously health, ill health, is the, the major common uh, risk that, that uh, gets mentioned. Uh, but there are others. Um, so theft. Uh, lots of cases uh, very often come up through the qualitative research of property grabbing from, uh, from widows when their husbands die, uh, or from uh, uh, divorced or separated women when they, when they separate. Um, so the husband's family will will take the property back, leaving uh, the, the woman's, the, the, the ex-wife's um, household and children, uh, quite often in very difficult circumstances. Something quite new also came up in some of the qualitative research, and, and we're noticing this in other countries as well, that in where people are farming land which is a little bit far from their houses, theft of crops uh, is becoming, seems to be becoming more commonly reported. Uh, and sometimes theft of assets, farm assets, or it could be uh, business assets. So theft and insecurity seems to be uh, a major risk or an increasingly uh, major risk. Um, I mentioned social obligations uh, already. Some of these are rising, so the bride price can be, can be rising, creating additional, uh, additional difficulties. 
officials may rail against such practices. People in leadership positions try to curb them. Very, diff very difficult to curb them, and they often persist over very long periods of time. Now, social protection is supposed to help with, um, uh, with managing risk. And what we found is that both in Ethiopia and in Rwanda, where there are quite extensive social protection schemes, this does help uh, particularly the very poor, but it doesn't extend very much to vulnerable people. In Ethiopia, I think it's begun to extend to uh, people vulnerable to drought. So the uh, PSNP is, uh, is, is expanded in drought periods and then contracted again. Um, but uh, our evidence shows that there is a lot of vulnerability out there among people who are not poor, people who are maybe just above the poverty line, people who have just managed to escape, and that vulnerability is not uh, so far uh, very well taken into account in, in social protection schemes. The big exception to this is uh, health insurance, which Rwanda has, uh, has invested in very substantially. There's something like uh, 80% uh, coverage of the population now, with a lot of subsidy going from government to pay for the health insurance premiums of uh, the poorer people in the community. And it's, so we talk about becoming resilient, uh, and we've got <coughs> examples of people who have become resilient, and perhaps in the second panel we'll, we'll uh, explore some of those uh, examples. Um, perhaps if you have a health insurance scheme, that would enable you to be resilient at a, a lower level of income or assets than would otherwise be the case, because your health insurance scheme is at least partly taking care of uh, some of those uh, very important health risks. Um, there's a case of, I'll just see if I can find it in my notes. Um, I'm going to just read you a story about urban resilience, because we don't, we don't have a lot, at least in this synthesis document, uh, to say about urban poverty and urban uh, sustained escapes, but I'll just read you one uh, example here. Vedeste had a successful business in second-hand clothes trading and was an early entrant into a trader's cooperative where shares rose over time, which enabled him to heavily invest in each of his children's secondary and tertiary education and in rental property in addition to his own urban house. So when he recently had a severe shock when second-hand clothes trading was banned, and heavily enforced with confiscation of stock and materials. Combined with a further shock with illness, he, and then I have to find page 34. Sorry about this. Here we go. I need page 35. Uh, he was sustained through his investments in property and children's education, so he still hasn't fallen into poverty. Uh, so the, the investments in his children's education and in urban property uh, meant that he, he was able to stay out. Uh, he did also have to take loans to educate his younger children, but he was able to do that as well. Um, so, I mean, I think that's an example perhaps of where, and this is something that we'll, we'll come on and talk about a little bit, uh, a little bit more in a minute uh, as we go through the, the other presentations um, of uh, where a government policy can also uh, have potential to uh, impoverish or to, to create obstacles in the way of people sustaining their escapes. So the example there was the, the ban on second-hand uh, clothing. Now, m government policies are made for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and 
clearly a ban on second-hand clothing, which is now, uh, I think it's being uh, introduced uh, in a number of countries in East Africa for very understandable reasons, um, it, you know, to, to try and uh, support local industry development and so on. Uh, but it can have effects um, on people's livelihoods. And one of the things, we found a number of different examples of this, where government policies of one sort or another uh, have uh, had effect. Land confiscation, you'll see in the, in the paper an example of land confiscation for a forest reserve, which uh, led to people uh, being impoverished um, or not being able to continue the, the kind of progress that they were previously making. Um, so what we argue here is that policies in general need to be poverty-proofed. So a policy like, you know, banning second-hand clothing may not, on the surface of it, have much to do with poverty or livelihoods. But clearly a lot of people gain their livelihoods from, uh, from selling second-hand clothing. So policy needs to be poverty-proofed. So when you're designing a policy, think about its likely impacts and the risks that this policy may create. Policies, health insurance policies, fantastic for, uh, for um, helping people to control those risks. But other policies may also introduce uh, additional risks. Um, I'll just turn finally to a couple of issues. Uh, I think there's, um, there's a long tradition of debate about the importance of social policies versus economic policies in terms of driving poverty reduction. And what we found in this research is that social the social policies are those which are a little bit more straightforward, the health education uh, and social protection policies, a bit more straightforward to implement, design and implement, and get good results from. Uh, the economic policies are a little bit more difficult. So what have we found? That, uh, yes, education is extremely important, particularly post-primary education, and particularly where people can gain access to skills. We have a number of stories of people who really designed their own skills training, program. They weren't ready-made out there in, in school or in, in uh, technical institutes. They went and uh, you know, got apprenticeships, got their own skills. There were some cases also where people have gone to technical colleges and acquired skills. So getting skills which enable you to go further in the labor market so that you're not dependent on unskilled labor is very important. And I think this is, this is a way that the, ed the, dis the discourse is going around educational policy. Uh, and this, these findings would very much uh, emphasize this. Gender equality. Uh, and this, is, this comes up time and time again, in the, particularly in the qualitative research, uh, where, uh, as in Ethiopia and Rwanda, there are protections for women uh, in terms of their access to land, particularly at critical times when they lose their husbands or when they separate. Um, this can make a huge difference in terms of their continued welfare. So having those basic land equality, uh, gender equality measures, but focused on resources, focused on assets and properties, very, uh, very critical. Um, we've found uh, a number of cases, both in the quantitative research and in the qualitative research, uh, of people who've become disabled or have been disabled for a very long time. Um, in most, uh, this, this does not prevent you escaping poverty necessarily. Uh, it depends on the disability and it depends on your household and so on and so forth and the support that you can muster. Um, but uh, many of the households with 
disabled people in them find great difficulty in escaping poverty. There's there are many more stories of chronic poverty or impoverishment. So disability remains an issue which I think is, is not uh, particularly well treated as yet uh, by policy. Um, so what does this all mean? Um, as I said, the policies which have really made a difference, I, I think there are probably two takeaways from uh, this presentation that I'd like you to hold on to. One is that there are relatively few sustained escapes from poverty, and there's quite a lot of impoverishment in these systems, in these social and economic systems. Uh, and secondly, that um, in terms of uh, policies, it's the social policies which have been more straightforward to introduce and have had generally greater effects. The economic policies uh, have a more mixed record in terms of positive and negative uh, impacts. Um, very, quite strong uh, economic policies in terms of promoting growth from above, but we also need those uh, policies which are going to promote growth from below. So supportive policies, obviously, post-primary education, skills development, helping with diversification, enabling people to retain access to land. Lots of stories of losing access to land, which really isn't helpful. Um, uh, developing a financial inclusion system. I haven't mentioned much about financial inclusion, but actually uh, I did mention one or two little cases. Uh, many of the stories of people who are sustaining their escapes from poverty, you will find that they, they're saving in a savings and credit group, that eventually they do well enough, they can go on and, and join a formal cooperative, or they can even get a bank loan. And it's that progression through the financial system which we see uh, as being quite a feature of sustained escapes out of poverty. Now, most financial systems fi are, not, uh, are not coordinated. I mean, it happens that there are self-help groups, and it happens that there are microfinance institutions, and it happens that there are banks. But they don't talk to each other very much, and there isn't a, a common system. There's no credit referencing, and so on and so forth. So uh, financial inclusion is also an important part of it. Also, avoid measures which restrain investment. So assess the impact of fees, of taxes, of regulations on making progress out of poverty. And be particularly cautious about any of those which might cause people to dispose of assets. If you have to sell land in order to pay a fee or a tax, uh, that's not a very good outcome of policy. So this is what I mean about poverty proofing. And I've talked about women's economic empowerment, particularly around uh, assets. And then I think I've, I've said enough on the risk side, probably. Um, we can leave it there. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, so I know that, uh, Fred, your, 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 yours was relatively short, so you gave quite a bit of time for Andrew to, to cover the ground. But actually, I think that was very helpful. It uh, set things out in a very clear way. Um, my mind is is full of full of questions and um, uh, takeaways. There's lots of things I want to discuss with colleagues, <laughs> with an almost immediate effect. Notwithstanding, um, I mean, notably the growth from below idea, I think, is a really interesting one, and, and what that means in terms of kind of policies around inclusive growth. We're all tackling. Um, and so on. So, but let's not get into that. Let's hear now from Elvin, who's going to reflect, I think, a little bit on on um, uh, on the work you've been doing in Kenya in reference to this question about sustained escapes. Thank you, Elvin. Over to you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Good morning again. Um, so a lot more has been said by Andrew. So Kenya is not different, but I'd like to share with you because he's focused more on Rwanda, Tanzania, and the other countries. But for Kenya, the key message that we found from the field is that uh, indeed agriculture is very important and farming is a major uh, route to poverty escape. However, what we're we are seeing mostly is agriculture is becoming less effective because of the small land holdings, particularly where we had our research, is that most of these uh, farmers have very small land holdings. That means that uh, really the output is quite small and the cost of inputs, for example, is very high for them. And uh, one of the case studies was in the drylands and therefore climate variability is very, very key to them and they couldn't really, uh, farming would, couldn't uh, let them move out of, the, out of poverty. Uh, the other key message we had from the field is that yes, jobs and employment, uh, the other possible way of uh, you know, sustaining escapes, it's a better route. However, complementing it as a way of complementing farming is not working very well because of like what Andrew said, the mismatch between the skills, education skills, and into the labor market is really not working well. And so that is one way whereby Kenya has to look into policy, uh, you know, interventions around that. Uh, the other uh, issue we found out was that, uh, indeed, most of these people, if they have to move out of poverty, it means that uh, they really have to be supported in what they're doing. So majority of them are in the informal sector, but we lack that uh, policy uh, of, uh, you know, just uh, boosting in the informal sector. So that constrains job recreation, which would have been a main booster to you know, uh, move people out of poverty. Uh, the other issue is that uh, we do lack uh, data on poverty reduction, and therefore interventions are more of uh, you know, general sectors. And so we are not able to get the, the drivers, for example, that really lead people to, uh, into poverty, and that is a key key challenge for the country overall. Just going back to the rural Kenya and some of the findings that we got from the field, this is work that has been going on from 2005. So we had panel data from the quantitative, but recently we've had to do the qualitative side of things. We look at the life histories and talk to people exactly what, the, what they feel is uh, uh, making them stay in poverty or come out of poverty. And so one of the key things, because it's a rural Kenya, we noticed that uh, <coughs> Indeed, land is the valuable asset, and that enables them to move out of poverty or just transition from poverty into a better place. But however, the fact that the lands are being subdivided from day to day because of population increase, so we find that they do not have much to do on that land, and that means that they tend to fall back into poverty. As much as we want them to move sustainably out of poverty, they then fall back because there isn't much asset base there uh, for the land. A uh, majority of them are, you know, they keep livestock as just to diversify from farming, uh, from agriculture, they keep livestock. But what we find out, found out that the challenge was the cost of feeds is quite high for them. Uh, veterinary services are are barely available for them. And then, of course, the climate variability is also an additional stressor to them. And therefore, as much as they, they, they move up, you know, uh, from poverty in a way, but then they tend to fall back immediately because of these uh, issues around them. And the other thing is that uh, when you look at the attributes of their households and capacities, we found that, uh, you know, this very high, households with high dependency ratio tend to really be transitory ex escapers or tend to be more impoverished other than, you know, moving out of uh, 
poverty. And one of the key things we found out that young families indeed, there's that aspiration that they want to take their children to school. So much of the inputs and the outputs from farming is actually taken into education. But notice that we do have free primary education, but there are other additional costs of which uh, these rural uh, farmers' households really have to meet. And therefore they say, given that I have a quarter necker, whatever produce comes out, I have to make sure that I, I use that money for school fees and want my children to be better than me. So they tend to really focus on that more and then they're left without uh, much uh, income. Older persons as well, when you look at them, it's like uh, over the life histories, they've improved. So the trajectory shows that they've improved in a way, but then once they grow older, they have really no much support. Even though we have this uh, social protection programs for the older people, mm -hmm. but it, the, the coverage is quite small, so they don't reach out to them. And uh, you expect that the children that they've taken to school to support them, but the fact that some of them are not even employment, they are really, again, dependent on them. They don't really get to you know, sustain that particular trajectory, but then they tend to be more impoverished at the end of the day. Female-headed households, it's quite interesting how they looked at things. Any uh, any interventions from the government or NGO, they will take it up very flexibly, but then they tend not to move from, uh, you know, even though those interventions are there, but they don't, they don't need, they don't move to sustained uh, group, but it's just transitory, you know. It's, it's a way that they have so much on the plate to do, the time constraints, a lot of things to do, so they don't really move, yeah, move out of poverty, they still remain there. And surprisingly, we thought that, uh, Households whereby we, we can find educated, probably headed households, we thought that could be something very positive. But at the end of the day, these educated households, they're not actually moving into sustained escapes, but they are still on transitory escapes because they focus more on education, taking their children to education, spending so much of that money uh, educating their children to be better than them. So they just tend to be afloat. They don't really move out uh, of poverty in a way. Uh, the other thing that we looked at are what are some of the household activities then that really will help them escape from poverty. And one of the key things we found out that other than extensive farming, intensive farming was more rewarding to the, to the households. And therefore, when you look at uh, extensive farming, to them it meant that they actually buy land away from where they are. And like Andrew said, but because of insecurity issues where they've bought land, they buy land, they leave it there, they come back to their little small housing because of the social networks around them. They leave the larger land somewhere else, they do the planting, but because of insecurity, they find that most of that crop then is taken away, you're stolen something. So then they move back into that uh, very uh, state as they were before. Then the other thing is that as much as they diversify into small businesses like kiosks and all that, but the money income is quite small. So really we don't see significant improvement at the end of the day. And like I said, we do not have a sector, a policy on informal sector that will really boost them uh, 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 in that particular arena. Uh, one surprising thing we also found out was that uh, <coughs> Looking at the quantitative data and the qualitative uh, 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 analysis, we have found no significant relationship between the wage employment and sustained escapes because of the informal nature of employment that people are involved in. So the re really, the wages are quite small, and so they don't really get to move up. Uh, the other thing that uh, then uh, you know makes them remain in poverty is the health shocks. 
yeah? We have the health shocks and uh, the fact that uh, we, we depend on rain-fed agriculture. It really is a big uh, risk for the, for the households. For example, the health, we have the National Health Insurance Fund, but then in, in most of the cases and life histories and households that we, we engaged in, just one out of all that, that we spoke to were actually enrolled with the National Health Insurance Fund. Why? Because they say it costs uh, Kenya shillings 300 to register monthly for the insurance, but then that same amount is the same thing I'll use to go for transport, to go and uh, you know deposit this money. So what's the difference? So, but for those who, that one particular household that had uh, health insurance, because the son then does that, uh, pays for them from uh, you know an urban center for, to just take care of his health. And the other thing that we found out is that. Uh, if the fact that these households really are, they're really trying, they're really coming up with strategies to actually move out of poverty. And one of the key things is we couldn't rule out agriculture. It is on a small scale, but then it's helping in a way for them. It's the only source of livelihood anyway. So that, that way we have to support it in order for them to actually move out of poverty. And therefore more interventions at the policy level will then be required to, to you know, support them further. And the other thing we found out was there was massive migration of men to the urban centers. Because of the land small holdings, they really tend to, to move out. Either they are employed away, uh, and so they, they keep going out and then sending remittances back to the, either the, the wife or you know, those who are remaining behind. So that is one other strategy that they are using uh, to do that. But some, surprising enough, once they retire or they lose jobs, as much as they would have moved from one uh, level to another, they tend to come back again into, the, into that very status they were in before. So that sustainability uh, aspect doesn't really come out, even, even though the man was uh, out there making money. So coming back again, they can fall to the same level. Uh, the other thing is education, really, moving them out of poverty, and then the whole idea of children going out there to, to look for employment. In terms of uh, programming, uh, some of the strategies that we found out that are really working or could work better would have been you know, supporting migration and non-farm economy so that uh, uh, these people really uh, escape from poverty, maximizing on remittances from uh, the urban centers. Um, the other thing is focusing on jobs in small and medium-term towns. Uh, the thing is, with, with, with Kenya, from 2010, we've had the devolved governance. So we have counties where we have sort of decentralized governance now. And so we expect that these small towns, that they're like little cities or little capitals, will provide uh, some form of employment to these uh, uh, people. And then, of course, the challenge of improving transition between education and labor market, which is quite a key uh, weak weakness for the government there. Um, and uh, the whole idea of free education, how free is it? So we need to look at, uh, relook at it and see whether it is indeed free and what are some of the challenges that uh, uh, can be you know, addressed in terms of uh, education, free education. Land is an issue. Uh, Andrew has spoken about it. Land fragmentation is an issue. Land rates are very quite high. And then, of course, the issue of women land rights, whether you're widowed or, you know, uh, you just lost it after divorce, you're a female-headed house, it's quite a challenge, you really don't get it back. And so that, uh, even though the constitution uh, you know, addresses that, but we're still a long way to addressing that. 
Um, social protection, like in Ethiopia, in Kenya, we have the hunger safety net program. We have other three uh, programs on social protection. However, there's need for the government, for example, to support households to graduate from social assistance into you know, empowerment so that they do not really depend on that. Um, and you know, coming up with protection measures that uh, will protect households from shocks, really. And then, of course, looking at uh, the weather best insurance so that the farmers, since they're rural farmers, they really need to have an insurance around there, which is but at a very small scale. And uh, finally, for, <coughs> for rural farmers to really move from, uh, you know, from where they are to a better, uh, to at least escape from poverty, some of the key uh, uh, messages we got from the policymakers while we were talking to them is like, indeed, it's a complex, uh, uh, complex thing to do. We could have integrated projects, integrated projects, and policies together, and then bringing up those linkages that really support uh, poverty escape. But then the main challenge is how to implement that. So Kenya is known to have very good policies, but implementation challenges uh, remains a, a big key, a key, a key thing for them. Um, the other thing is that uh, as much as we get interventions to the rural people, there's need to have an exit strategy from the word go, so that as those funders or supporters are helping the rural poor, they need from what good to have an exit strategy so that the, the dependency ratio is is actually reduced. Um, of course, the need for participation and capacity building from onward, uh, from the onset, is required. Um, and we also note that uh, the poor need extensive support, not just a one-off uh, uh, intervention, and therefore integrated programming is still key to them. Um, the whole idea of double dipping, you know, referring, linking, and referrals from one project to another will also be a, a good uh, uh, strategy to remove them out of poverty. And then, of course, ensuring that there are complementarities between uh, these projects or different interventions in order to help them move out of poverty. I think I'll stop there. Very uh, good. Thank you very much, Alvin. So we've got about 30 minutes or so. Um, and uh, to try and make this as inclusive as possible, if those of you with questions, yes, um, would like to briefly introduce themselves, say where they're from, um, and keep, you know, keep relatively brief. Um, then we'll be able to incorporate those who are also online. I've got a couple. I've got one or two questions from them too. So we'll let's deal with the house first, and then we'll go online and see what see where we go. So we've got a question here. You, sir, were the first with your hand up, and then if you wouldn't mind here, and and here. Thank you. We'll take three at a time and see how we get on. Um, uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate you for such a lovely event and very important topic. My name is Mubin Rafiq. I'm Managing Director of Micro, Small, Medium Enterprises. Uh, we wanting to help the uh, African countries for setting up micro, small, medium enterprises projects. Uh, what I have noticed this morning is that we, you have uh, extensively covered poverty issues as far as the agriculture side is concerned. What I was just wondering, and my question was with the panel is this, that uh, after the Millennium Development Goals, the whole world has tried to find a way, how do we alleviate poverty and how do we uh, create more jobs. So I just wanted to know that, uh, you know, 
what is what are the four or five main points that you know after all this research all over the world what is it exactly we can do uh, just to help you out i personally feel that it's an entrepreneurship it's a skill development and it's micro small medium enterprises so i would really like you to if you can the panel can share their views on that please thank you and we had a question here and then you said Thank you. Kate McKee from the Partnership for Economic Inclusion, which is hosted in the World Bank. Fantastic panel. My question is about the kind of quandary around the informal sector and in these economies where it doesn't seem to be shrinking quickly and is probably growing. And I'm interested, Fred, in both the political economy of that and of policies that would be supportive and more kind of poverty helpful there. And also then how it looks from the, from the household side in terms of how they view their options for mobility around the informal sector. Thank you. Very good, thanks. And we've got one question here and then we'll come to you. Martin Justin from the charity Food for the Hungry. And my question's very basic um, in that the figures you've discussed are a bit depressing. They show that uh, escape from poverty is not going very well at all. And this seems to jar with the claims behind the Millennium Development Goals of having taken a billion people out of poverty over 25 years. Uh, is this simply looking at uh, the same figures in, in a different way? Or is there something more fundamentally wrong with the way those Millennium Development Goals were framed? Thank you. Thank you for that. Shall we take a response to those three and then we'll come to the group of three at this side? Um, I, think, I think we're okay. Would you like, who would like to go first? <coughs> the question on job creation, the question on the informal sector and something on the data. We go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's not, uh, you know, I would be um, creating an illusion to say that it was easy to generate economic policies which are going to turn the informal sector into that kind of hive of entrepreneurship and, and uh, accumulating of capital and, and, um, and progress that I think um, people are looking for. But I mean, that's, that's what is needed. So in a sense, we've identified the problem. It's not a new problem. It's been around for a long time. It has both urban and rural dimensions. I think the informal the discourse about the, the informal sector used to be a very urban discourse. I think now we realize that uh, you know, most of the rural economy in uh, many countries is also informal. So uh, you know, what, are the, what are the things that need to be done? <laughs> Growth from below, promote that informal sector. At least don't regulate it out of existence. Don't make it impossible for people to make a decent uh, living um, in that in that part of the economy. Um, we wrote a policy guide on private sector development, which was, if you like, private sector development from below. You'll find it on the Chronic Poverty Network website. But that very much argued that uh, for poor people to become entrepreneurial and to kind of move up that ladder that uh, many... Uh, NGOs uh, like to, to work on, um, requires, as uh, uh, Elvin was suggesting, 
a number of different complementary inputs, probably training, probably finance, probably asset development, uh, and possibly mentoring as well, having kind of continuous support over a period of time. And there are models, and I think later on uh, Lewis Temple will be uh, on the third panel, and he will no doubt pick up um, some of these issues. There are some very strong models which uh, are able to uh, achieve at least some of that. Uh, they may be quite expensive, so the costs of doing these things uh, very much uh, come into the picture. Um, but definitely, you know, your desire to promote small and, and medium and micro enterprise. I mean, I think we're probably talking more here about growth from, the below, from below in the sense of micro and small enterprises. So if you're talking about employment, it would be very few people. Um, you know, liberating the non-farm economy. So this is, this is on, the one, on the one side. How do you promote the informal sector? And I think this is probably, uh, you know, something that we need to keep coming back to through uh, today's discussions. I'm sure other people have got uh, other good ideas on that. But on the other side, risk management is incredibly important because uh, life is very, very risky for people at the bottom of the income distribution. And it's, as I've tried to describe, it's all kinds of different risks. And I think Elvin was very eloquent. And, you know, yes, it, it is a bit depressing um, that here are all these efforts going on, efforts by the individuals themselves, you know, strategizing, thinking, how can I improve my, my uh, family's position by governments, by NGOs, and so on. And in some cases, it doesn't amount to very much. Of course, the MDGs, you know, if you take the, the whole world, uh, China accounts for a very large proportion of the poverty that was reduced during the MDG period. And a very large part of the rest of the poverty that was reduced was also in Asia. Uh, Africa didn't participate so much. Most of our case studies that are reflected today are African case studies. So in a sense, uh, it's, nothing, it's nothing that is very different from uh, the, the uh, outcomes from the, from the MDGs. On the other hand, uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda, among African countries, are, and this is why you know, we very much wanted to research in those two countries, are known for their good policy frameworks, from their, for their attempts to at least grow the economy strongly from above. Um, and we thought that they would be the places that we would find the sustained escapes if we were going to find them anywhere. So in that sense, yes, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit disappointing, and it's also a bit surprising, and we're still trying to work on the comparison that uh, the escapes, the sustained escapes, were seem to be rather greater in Tanzania than in those other two countries. Tanzania is not noted for having, uh, you know, a very um, strong, as Fred was saying, a very strong uh, focus on poverty reduction in its policies during the last uh, couple of decades. Um, but there's something about the Tanzanian economy. Perhaps it's a bit more open. Perhaps it's uh, a bit less regulated, perhaps. Um, I mean, there are causes of there's plenty of impoverishment going on in Tanzania as well. Don't don't get me wrong, and there are plenty of obstacles to people sustaining their escapes. But there seems to be something about it that we haven't quite yet captured, um, which uh, makes it somehow easier for that growth from below process to to take place. I mean, it could be that there are some data problems, data issues in our analysis on Tanzania because the I think the poverty line that the uh, household survey which we used uh, effectively um, made use of is a very low poverty line. So 
Uh, we haven't quite got to the bottom of, bottom of that. It seems a very difficult technical issue. Um, so there could be some doubts cast on, on that result. But uh, in any case, um, yes, I mean, you're, you're overall right. It's not terribly encouraging. And I think combining that focus on getting growth from below, as well as the growth from above and the jobs, uh, with the risk management is a pretty, pretty powerful way forwards. The good side of it is that we do know that the social policies can, can work. And if you go back to Tanzania, we know that the social policy, there's been a lot of emphasis on social, the, the social policies in Ethiopia and Rwanda. Go back to Tanzania, where that emphasis has been there, but you know, attenuated by comparison. Um, the current Tanzanian government is, is now developing a social protection policy. So there's hope that that will um, become much, more, much stronger than it has been. It's developing a health insurance policy. So it's, in a way, getting its act together on, on some of these really important issues. So there's a little bit of uh, hope on that side. Thank you. Any other responses yeah, um, from the panel? Yeah, on the, on the issue of uh, micro-enterprises, um, <coughs> of, of the three countries that we're dealing here, the one that I know quite well is Rwanda. And I think that, that sort of reminds me of the great ambition, or one of the great ambitions the government of Rwanda has, which is to create very many off-farm jobs. Now, part of that ambition is to make sure that they help people set up micro-enterprises and get away from farming as much as possible. <coughs> and this also ties into their ambitions to create secondary cities and make Rwanda more and more urban. So I think that there, one really sees a certain desire to create business uh, as much as possible. And this takes me also to the issue of the informal sector. It seems to me as if in Rwanda, the drive is towards formalization <coughs> rather than encouraging the growth of the former sector. And I think that this has to do again with uh, uh, um, uh, another great ambition of the country, of the government, which is to win itself off aid. <coughs> and they believe that this can only be achieved through generating their own resources. And the tax net is being cast very, very wide. <coughs> And part of this casting of the of the tax uh, tax net is to make as many informal businesses turn them into formal enterprises. So you see in Kigali hawkers being chased off the street and being organised in markets and so on. And the, the, this this has a very big drive behind it of making sure these people get to pay tax, so that the country can collect more tax, depend less and less on aid. I've just done a study across five districts um, in Rwanda, again looking at the business, uh, the business community. And one of the things that struck me again looking at the drive towards formalization is how even the motorbike industry, I mean in Uganda where I was born and where I grew up, the motorcycle industry is informal and disorganized. In Rwanda it has been organized in cooperatives. Again, they are being taxed. <coughs> in Uganda, they are not taxed. And when you look at how these cooperatives work, you find that actually these motorcycle cooperatives are also setting up big businesses. They are building real, they, they have real estate projects, they have all kinds of projects to generate extra income. Now, that also is taxed. 
If you go to small towns, you find that porters who carry luggage in markets have also been organized in cooperatives. They're also being taxed. So there is a great drive towards formalization. And I think, in my opinion, I haven't studied this, and it's not really something that I know a lot about, but my just from casual observation and reading the newspapers and listening to debates, it seems as if the government of Rwanda is interested in increasing formalization rather than allowing the informal sector to expand or to grow. But that has big ambitions behind it. <coughs> Do you want to respond to this? I have also a direct question online that's posed to you, but perhaps we can come to that if you okay. want to make some comments now. Yeah, I think uh, if I may just add uh, on the informal sector, uh, one of the key things I see working more among the probably the youth and the uptake being quite quick is the use of the ICT, uh, you know, uh, technologies. And uh, like for Kenya, we have the mobile money transfer that is really helping them to uh, just, you know, keep afloat. But then this is more from the urban the urban youth other than the rural youth who will then not have access to probably the internet and all that. By the so there's that uh, bubble on how do we work around that so that uh, we can actually promote ICT so that, uh, you know, there's that uh, particular element is worked on. And the other thing is, uh, one other thing, we're looking at skills. Our curriculum probably is more on more academic than skills. For example, if you move down to Kenya, we had uh, we have more of the universities other than the vocal the vocational training colleges that were at some point you know trans uh, converted into universities. So there's that particular gap there of which we we need to look at, and you know the attitude change towards the different uh, you know uh, workforce uh, that we we should be uh, addressing at the moment. Great, thank you very much. So we did have three questions here. I'll, I'll, I'm just going to put this one into the into the mix, which we got online, which was uh, directed to um, uh, Elvin. But I think it's also something relevant to Fred. So um, uh, your Braj Basnet from Nepal says you directed to uh, Elvin Nakuri. You talked about governance and devolution. It came from both sides. Was there any relationship between decentralisation with escaping from poverty? So let's hold that one. And we'll take the three that came from this side, and then perhaps you'd like to respond to that, um, uh, along with, with from our colleagues. So, Tim, uh, first, and then I think we were here at the back yourself and, and you, sir. Go ahead. Firstly, just to say thanks for an excellent introduction, really interesting work. So questions, I think, about the politics and about some of the policy um, issues to come later. But just to get clarity on on these numbers and the, and the picture that we're talking about, to come back to this how do we reconcile the picture of overall falling poverty with this point about impoverishment, you know, sometimes exceeding um, the, the escapes? My understanding is we can reconcile those because all of these countries have seen falling poverty, even if modestly, yeah? So what we're saying, the, the framing of this is those who escape poverty but then fell back are as many or more than those who escaped poverty and stayed out. To look at the reduction in poverty on the poverty positive side of the ledger, we also have those who were poor from round one to round two and then escaped in round three. And we also have those who dipped into poverty and then escaped in round three. Yeah, so we've got two extra sort of components of the total. That I just wanted to check that to 
square it in my head. Um, I, again, I, I think this is credible, and I'm a big fan of panel studies. Just to ask this question of how sensitive would this be to where we set the poverty line, and how comparable, how can we ever compare poverty lines between countries? But you know, how is there some kind of sensitivity analysis? Do we think it would change the picture if we nudged it a bit higher or a bit lower? Because I think sometimes there has been this issue when you throw in measurement and, and noise about you know how strong the conclusions we draw from panel data analysis are. So are there any, to what extent do the qualitative firmly back up the findings from the panel? To what extent do they may, maybe raise some nuances or, or, or some questions to explore? Thanks. Thank you, and then you, sir. You want to introduce yourself, please? <coughs> Thank you for organizing this uh, lecture. Uh, my name is Femi Apata. I'm from LAM Care Foundation. Uh, my question is probably on top-down policy governance and governance. Friend mentioned about accountability. What about the issue of corruption and transparency among the political leaders? What is the effect on the escape of poverty? Thank you. Yes, please, and then uh, you, um, yourself. Thank so you. So also many thanks to the uh, panelists. Um, my name is Theo Popiano. I'm a professor of politics, innovation, and development at the Open University. Um, in um, recent academic and policy literature, uh, this notion of growth from below uh, in the informal economy is very much linked to new inclusive forms of innovation taking place in microenterprises, in, in cooperatives. Um, this you know, can be, uh, they call them frugal innovations, grassroots innovations. Um, but this notion of innovation didn't come uh, up in your presentation. So I was wondering whether this is uh, a factor that you might have to look at. Very good. Thanks very much. Um, and I, I suspect we won't have much chance for one other round. So I think I'll just take one more question here. Uh, sorry, first come, first served. Thank you. Marcus Manuel from the Overseas Development Institute. I just wonder if the panel wants to expand on this uh, issue around land grabs, and particularly whether there's any government policy to address that is, that is working. Uh, when you talk about social policies, you talk about health, education, and social protection, you don't talk about the delivery of justice and you know, the question whether justice actually is a service that's missing in all of this and would help, or whether it's actually too inbuilt and you know, is impossible to change. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, over to you. Perhaps, Selvin, you want to respond on the, the first one, the online question is... Decentralization. Yeah, there's the specific. This is a... Anyway, so at least, we're, at least we're, we're having some inclusion here from those online. So, over to you. Yeah, uh, uh, with regard to decentralization for Kenya, I think what we found out is that the... They were happy that decentralization happened. There were services close to them, but then they were not seeing, um, uh, they had yet to see much of the benefits from decentralization because of the, you know, the different institutional or barriers they have to go through. But, and of course, they were happy that, you know, uh, as much as uh, funds are coming down to them, the roads are okay, we have more health facilities, but with no drugs in the, in the health centers. They're saying education, of course, is working out well, but they are yet to see the major impact of that uh, particular element. Of course, I think what they, they anticipated, either the expectations were too high, uh, and they really didn't anticipate that uh, five years down the line, they would still be in the same position. So that is one of the key things that 
that was coming out from the field. How about you, Fred? Uh, reflections on that, on that particular question, or any others, actually? Yeah. Um, <coughs> the, on the question uh, of the relationship between decentralization and poverty reduction, um, again, the, the, the whole movement towards uh, decentralizing power or devolving it from central governments to local governments, this, this is more than two decades down the road. And many African governments we are literally dragged screaming into these reforms. They didn't want to carry them out. <coughs> and in many of them, the reforms were carried out, but they really didn't achieve the objectives because governments simply didn't want to do what they were being told to do. Now again, if I contrast Uganda, and, and I wrote my PhD thesis on decentralization in, in Uganda in the mid-90s, and Rwanda, which I have been studying in more recent years, the drive for decentralization originated in different places. <coughs> in, the, in Rwanda, local government is a creature of central government. It is an instrument for policy implementation. Now, all policy implementation in Rwanda goes via the Ministry of Local Government. So if, you, if it's the Minister of Health wants to do anything in the countryside, that has to go by the Ministry of Local Government. And the implementation is done by local governments, which are prevailed upon by the central government to do things in a very particular way. So where you see success of any policy on the ground, local governments are very much at the center <coughs> of, the, of all implementation. Even where there is failure, that failure originates in how central uh, local government is relating to central government. So if I were to look at, say, spe a specific anti-poverty policy that has worked very well, you'll find that it has worked well because local government has been very much involved. So the critique has always been that where you find central government uh, driving local government, then it's really not decentralization because it, it violates every principle of separation of powers and so on and so forth. My own position is the greater devolution you have in contexts where the central state is weak, the more of a mistake it is. <clears throat> so for me, I prefer the kind of thing I see in Rwanda and Ethiopia where the central government actually dictates what local governments do. And in that way, personally, I think that you see more results there than where you create a system where local governments are autonomous and local elites can do pretty much what they like. Mm -hmm. So I see a very strong relationship there. <coughs> Great. Okay, thank you very much. And then um, with reference to the other questions, we had a question on poverty lines and data. We had a question on um, growth from the bottom and links to innovation. And then something on land grabs, I think. There was also a question yes, at the back, which... Question on that's correct. Yes. The question on accountability. Yes. Again, um, where you have a lot of corruption, or where governments are unable to control or to minimize corruption, it's very rare that you will find policies being implemented in the right way, or policies having the impact that was envisaged. Where you have less and less of that, and again, I think that Ethiopia and Rwanda, again, there you see a very, very strong anti-corruption drive. And I think that that's why those governments are known for delivering. Although, I mean, the, the, there's a discussion we are having within the team as to what exactly we are seeing on the ground. But at least the broad picture, uh, what the broad picture shows in, in both Ethiopia and, and Rwanda is that corruption levels are much less than, say, in Tanzania or even in Uganda. But corruption does, 
does undermine developing, development efforts in very significant ways. In Rwanda, we have something called zero tolerance to corruption. And if, for me, I always say, if there is an area where there's a clear violation of rights by the government of Rwanda, is in its anti-corruption anti drives, because they don't use the law to deal with corruption. Circumstantial evidence in Rwanda is enough to get you nailed, <coughs> sucked from your job, and so much, and so on and so forth. Whereas in Uganda, you'll have to go through the courts. There has to be proof that you stole money or whatever. And in many cases, that proof is never forthcoming. In Rwanda, they don't wait for the courts to decide. They take administrative measures, and that could just be on the basis of circumstantial evidence. So there, the, the, the rights discussion for me becomes real. <coughs> but that's why they're very effective, on the other hand. <coughs> So, fellow panelists, any any anything you would like to add, or, or response to some of the questions? I can respond perhaps. to yep. some of those um, on the on the issue of land grab and preventing uh, property grabbing. Uh, yeah, I mean, Marcus, this is very important. Um, I will um, just read a, a little case from Rwanda, which indicates that you know, indeed, there are efforts to. Um, to deal with this issue. Another route to a sustained escape is through women's empowerment, either by the state or by male kin, to be free to enhance their income through farming, livestock, or trade. For example, Jacqueline was very poor, but was enabled by her brothers to inherit and manage their land. It was encouraged by her husband to trade soybeans, which she was good at. And he also took her out of, he took her out of wedlock children, a norm change encouraged by government as part of its restructuring of traditional marriage customs. So marriage is also an issue which we'll perhaps come to in the uh, marriage customs and uh, relationships within marriage is, is something we'll come back to in the second panel. The state is moving in to secure women's inheritance, which for Francine enabled her escape from poverty. This is a, another lady. Francine Bugacera was the child of a first wife who died, and the land inheritance of the father went to his second wife. In 2017, with the help of a village leader, Francine got her inheritance, a land of 0.2 hectares. She sold it for 2 million francs and bought another land, 0.4 hectares, for 1,900 francs in another place where she hoped there was fertile land. This, this land inheritance moved her from essentially over the poverty line and moved her from being poor to being just above the poverty line. So, I mean, there are efforts going on, particularly in Rwanda, and there are uh, very progressive laws in Ethiopia on um, access to land and, and uh, women's access to land in particular. I think Yisak uh, Taferi, who will be on the second panel, can, can talk more about that. Um, corruption, I mean, corruption can also be directly impoverishing, so uh, is a very serious issue. For example, uh, in Tanzania, um, there is a move, of, because of climate change, there is a move of pastoral groups um, south into areas where occupied, which have been traditionally more occupied, more intensively occupied by settled farmers, and considerable land conflicts between pastoral and uh, settled farmer groups. Uh, the pastoralists, in at least in the stories that we collected, uh, are very effective at mobilizing money they can uh, get their members, the members of a particular group, to sell a cow or another animal and very quickly mobilize an amount of mon money which can be used to convince local government leaders with that autonomy that <laughs> they have in Tanzania 
uh, and uh, regional government leaders not to dispute their invasion of land. Uh, and this can lead to interesting effects. I mean, obviously, direct effects on the settled farmers. But also, we found one case where a sugar factory was depending on the supply of sugarcane from surrounding farmers. A pastoralist uh, invasion occurred, which meant that less sugar was produced. So the sugar factory was working at lower capacity levels, uh, laying off workers or reducing the amount of time that uh, workers uh, could work in the factory, essentially reducing their salaries. And those workers were, of course, supporting uh, you know, mothers and uh, aunts or uh, children. And so there were all sorts of knock-on effects there as well. So I think it was an, an interesting case where you have both direct effects and indirect uh, effects from, from corruption. And seemingly um, no way out on those issues. However, the current government in Tanzania has been taking extremely draconian measures against corruption at different levels. Um, I would say that in common with many governments, the anti-corruption efforts tend to be focused on high-level corruption, whereas the corruption which harms uh, people at the bottom of the distribution tends to be low-level corruption. Not always, but tends to be uh, low-level corruption. So, you know, I suppose the policy implication out of that would be more focus uh, on low-level corruption um, in anti-corruption efforts. And, Andrew, you're getting a signal from the back which says that we've got one minute left. I don't know how you want to use that. There's this complex issue about sensitivity to poverty lines, Tim, but perhaps we talk about that afterwards, yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually asking the question and putting that to the researchers is, is a good thing, and it's been, it's done. So if we don't get an immediate response now, hopefully that's something that you can it's pick maybe up. maybe something that Alex can later. take up in the, exactly. in the second panel exactly. as well. So thank you for the questions and apologies from our side for those who didn't get to ask questions and for those who perhaps feel that uh, the responses weren't quite sufficient enough. But we are, I think, at the break points for morning break. You can take that up uh, with the panel. So it only rem remains for me to sort of thank the panelists um, for a really interesting set of uh, presentations uh, around a really interesting and um, very pertinent topic. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.